Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We had leaking and the effects of leaking still going on with Chinese election interference here in Canada and the United States of America. A bizarre story of a 21-year-old National Guardsman bringing American intelligence uh, to their knees and leaking on an online chat room. We have the perfect guest, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, how are you doing? Thank you for joining us. I am great, although not sleeping well, because with all this cyber insecurity going on, um, I find myself staring at the ceiling wondering when the next attack is going to happen. This is uh, kind of frightening. Definitely an escalation uh, and something that worries me, and I, I hate to say it, it should worry all of us. Carmen, I've never heard you say that before, but you're right. I mean, it's been a flood. I said dizzying. You just don't know where to turn. Why don't we start with Canada a little bit? We had Hydro-Quebec, and then we had the the taking down the websites. We had the prime minister being asked about this and saying, oh, it's, it's just because of our support of Ukraine, Russia, attacks, and disinformation. We already are kind of tuned into this. I know I am, Carmen, and you and I have talked about it many, many times before. Is this an escalation? as you say here in Canada, though? I think it is. And I think it is tied to Canada's support of Ukraine and, of course, fighting off the Russian invasion. Russia made it very clear early on uh, after their forces rolled over the border that anyone who attempted to help the country uh, would be targeted in various ways, including in the digital domain. And we know that Russia is a major sponsor of state uh, cyber warfare. We know that they're kind of fighting this conflict in the digital space as well as on the military battlefield. Uh, and we know that Canada is going to be on the receiving end of it because of the assistance that we've provided. So no surprise there. Uh, all sort of records, all uh, reports since a year ago, February, have, have been in, in one direction, upward. Um, and this is just another example, another chapter uh, in an overall process that continues to unfold. The, that's the scary news. The good news is, is that the, the attacks that we saw this week, so the Hydro-Quebec website um, being uh, you know, essentially collapsing under the way, the prime minister's website being unavailable, a number of ports, uh, uh, you know, marine ports across the country, our transportation infrastructure, their websites were affected as well. Um, so it sounds unnerving, but the good news here is that it's, it's not really a sophisticated attack. We know that it's coming from a pro-Russian hacking group. Uh, we know that they're using something called di- uh, Distributed Denial of Service, or DDoS. And that is basically it's the most unsophisticated of uh, cyber attacks. Uh, they're not breaking in. They're not stealing anything. No data is being compromised. Basically, what they do is they target a particular website with with a large number of requests in a very short amount of time. Yeah, so, so they just crash it. Is that what you're saying? It, Exactly. It's like a pitchfork-wielding mob showing up at your front door, knocking on the door relentlessly. They don't come in, um, and they don't break in or steal anything. But, of course, it disturbs your life. Eventually, you can't do anything. You can't come and go. And because these websites are being um, you know, essentially hammered with millions of requests, uh, when you and I try to access them, we're unable to because we're, mm-hmm. we're just kind of lost in the mess. So that's really... You know, they're sending a message. They're saying we can reach out from halfway around the world and we can target you. 
Um, but we're really not very sophisticated in doing so. And, you know, that's about as far as it's going to go. And if that's as bad How as do you yet, know that, though, Carmi? How do we know? Because, you know, I'm wondering if it's a test. Remember, we had the huge uh, breach that happened in America. And yeah. I think you and I talked about it. And, and one of the warning signs was, no, we don't know what they know how to do. We don't know what, what they know how to get into. And we have to wait and see. Is and now we're seeing it. And as you say, you're correct. I mean, they're just deluging websites. But we know, look at the Rogers outage. We were all exactly. crawling around exactly. on our knees there, Carmi, so we could do a lot of damage. That's exactly it. It's like in this particular case, we kind of got lucky. This, these, uh, these attack, what we call vectors, these modes of attack, methods of attack, fairly unsophisticated. Um, and the individuals who were trying to pull it off, real frankly, not very good at what they did, because in most cases, these sites were either not completely compromised or they were back up and running fairly quickly. The problem here is, is you're right, it doesn't end there. There are all sorts of other ways of attacking. With you know, We're seeing a significant increase in phishing attempts, so messages that we receive that try to convince us, trick us into clicking on a link, which of course can then touch off a ransomware attack, both on our own computers or on the computers of the companies we work for or government agencies. So, you know, we know that the level of sophistication continues to go up and we know that they're not going to stop. And so I think that what we need to do is look at this week uh, as, as a warning that we as, a, as individuals, as a country, as a government, as the companies who set up shop here, we need to start taking this cybersecurity thing a lot more seriously and recognize that we live in a pretty scary neighborhood and that neighborhood is getting scarier by the day. And we better start preparing ourselves for it because it is going to get worse. And if we don't, then we're, we're at increased risk. All right. I'm glad you said that, Carmi, because I think you said it before. And that was my next question. We better be prepared for cyber warfare. Uh -huh. We have a lot of warnings. We've learned, unfortunately, as Canadians, that stuff we thought government was prepared for, like pandemics, they were not. Mm -hmm. Are you, what are you seeing here, Carmi? Are we prepared? It. I mean, we're kind of bracing ourselves for disappointment here, and we would be forgiven for being so pessimistic, I think. Yeah, I hate to sound overly negative because that's not the kind of person I am, but no. I, I don't think that we're prepared as well as we probably should be. I don't think that we prioritize it. I think, I think security or digital security is almost like insurance. No one pays attention to it until we really need it, until mm -hmm. after a disaster happens. And I think that's what's happening here, too, is I don't, sometimes I feel like I'm screaming into the wind. You know, we've got to take this more seriously. And I just, you know, I, the, the response I get, shrugs, and then everyone just goes back to their lives. And so I, I really do think, like, for example, the government, when they're setting their IT budgets, I think a good question for them is what percentage of all, of all this money you're spending on technology is being allocated towards cybersecurity, towards toughening our infrastructure, towards training those hundreds of thousands of people who work for the government to be more resistant to this kind of thing, where where that money should be going to that, and it isn't. We need answers now. Uh, and 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 I think, and I've been screaming about this for years, and I don't feel I'm getting the answers. Uh, but it's it's kind of like drinking and driving. You know, you're not going to solve it tomorrow, but you still got to raise the flag, and you still got to let folks know this is a problem. It's bad. It's going to get worse. We need to change our behaviors, or we're unfortunately going to be exposing ourselves to risk that we could have avoided if we were a little bit smarter. Carmi, I in this story south of the border, it's really has 
everything. And I'm not happy to see what the results are. I mean, look at look at the stuff that we're learning. We'll get into the tech part and the scary part and get your opinion in a moment, though. But Carmi, I'm sure you're seeing what I am. We're learning stuff that maybe we shouldn't know. The Pentagon documents say that Taiwan is so vulnerable. If there's an a airstrike from China, it just seems every hour we're finding about one more thing, who the Pentagon, who the United States was monitoring. And then we have the story, 21-year-old National Guardsman leaking this in your prevy here, Carmi, <laughs> online, on a chat room. What do you make of this story, considering what you do, Carmi? Well, it's, it's disturbing because I think it sends a message to the rest of us that our general approach to securing our most sensitive information, our most sensitive documents is not enough. Um, this is a perfect example of what I like to call an insider threat. So the, 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 the individual who's accused of leaking them, his name is Jack Texera. He's 21 years old. He, he's a low-ranking IT support guy with uh, with the National Guard, uh, based out of a uh, National Guard based in in Massachusetts, Otis Air Force, Otis Air Force Base, and basically what he does, he fixes computers. He makes sure that systems are available. And one of the systems that uh, is in use at this base, as is at, as it is at the Pentagon throughout all the military infrastructure around the world, it's known as JWICS or Joint Worldwide Communication. It's like the internet for the Defense Department. So basically, when you are sharing briefing documents that explain, we think Taiwan is vulnerable, we know that there were more Chinese balloons, here's some more information on them. That is how all this information gets documented and shared. It's how the U.S. military, a global organization, keeps up to date and let's make sure that everyone knows what's going on. But only the people who need to know, with top secret clearance, have access to this JWIC system. It's incredibly secretive. The problem here is, as we all know, you bring your laptop in to get repaired. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you trust that the person who's doing the repair uh, is not going to go snooping around on the hard Yeah, drive? talk That's to Hunter Biden as well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, obviously I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but the reality yeah, is, is true. this is a kid who had the keys to the kingdom and there the checks and balances to make sure that once he was granted access, that access, that he wouldn't abuse it clearly weren't there. They weren't double checking. It was almost like, oh, I got in from the front door with my with my key. Now I kind of have the run of the place. I can do what I want. And so if I'm the Pentagon, if I'm the U.S. military, I'm looking at my procedures and going, oh my God, they're clearly not adequate because basically this kid was able to download a ton of information. And then when he went home, he probably threw it on a, on a flash drive, went home and started sharing it on Discord, on, on other social media platforms where it sat for months. I know that's said, hey, that's the incredible part too, isn't it? It's was that it was just sitting there, and mm-hmm. these kids kind of looked up to this guy as a hero. They're on this chat room, and he says, "Oh no, this is real stuff." And then finally, one of them starts to leak leak the leaks, and yeah. the rest is history. But I want to ask you about this because it ties it. Here we are back into those chat rooms. So often Mm -hmm. stuff, we learn stuff or things happen in them. And then now I'm reading, and I just read a piece in the Wall Street Journal before we went to air here, that they monitored what they were talking about. And there were Mm -hmm. slurs and racial slurs. And I mean, there's there's kind of a template there, isn't there, uh, Carmi? We often talk about the danger of these things. And we know that people are supposed to be watching out for all of our safeties. They're supposed to be monitoring them. But this just shows the power of those chat rooms as well. 
It certainly does. You know, the, the, the problem is it's one of scale, right? Are we mm-hmm. able to monitor the ocean for every last drop of yeah, water that's true. in it? You know, there, there's no way to protect ourselves from all the things that are going on in the ocean. You sort of, you have to sort of put your blinkers on, your blinders on, and focus only on the things that are an immediate threat. Very easy to, in retrospect, to go, oh, it was sitting in that Discord chat room for months. We should have known. No, because do we know how many chat rooms there are out there on the internet? Like in order to find things, to trigger them, mm-hmm. very, very difficult. And so I think in hindsight, we, we should have been able to see it. But in reality, there is probably lots of other very sensitive information floating around. But because of the, the challenge of what I like to call discoverability, it's hard to know that it's a problem until you know that it's a problem. And so I think that's really the, the, the problem here is that our national interest, the U.S. national interest in particular, signals intelligence, uh, the NSA, their tools simply aren't powerful enough to scan the entire Internet and find those threats as they pop up or, or take a look at something that someone posted and said, wow, that looks like it came from the Pentagon. That's highly classified. You should investigate. Um, it isn't that easy, and it really does show how difficult a job the military does, how difficult the job law enforcement has, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, CFIS and CSC in Canada, all of these agencies are basically trying to police the universe. Uh, and it's very hard to find that one threat that is you know, immediate. Uh, it's very easy to miss it because there's so many things that you could be focusing on at any and, given time. And and the incredible part about it, it is, you know, earlier this week, I talked with one of the the reporters for Bellingcat that got in there and did a lot mm-hmm. of the breaking reporting on this. And he was telling me, I could not believe here I am talking to some 16 year old, 16, 17 years old. And they're the ones that have been looking at this. I mean, I didn't see this coming, Carmen. I don't know if you did. But then, I, again, I mean, I bet tomorrow morning when those documents now are getting combed through, you know, whether it's it's the New York Times, Washington Post, whether or not it's Wall Street Journal, they are all getting their hands on this. The world is vulnerable now, and a bunch of teenage kids finally leaked the leaker. Exactly. And, and so, you know, I think we, we, we can be sure that over the next few days and weeks, we're going to continue to discover more from this trove of documents as uh, experts continue to comb through them and discover sort of nuggets that they then share. And I think also we need to look at the community within those chat groups. It, it was a bunch of kids who kind of saw it. And here you have the original leaker, this 21-year-old Air National, you know, National Guardsman, um, who's looking for notoriety. He wants people to believe in their, their messages and where he said, it is legit, really, trust me. And so he's not some, wasn't some super spy. He was just some kid, uh, you know, barely a kid himself, who's looking for acceptance within a, a, a shadowy peer group online. And how many of us have, have, have seen that play out in chat rooms that we've been a part of? That's the way the game is played in the digital space. You're always trying to sort of one-up everyone else and get the attention. And clearly, this is a kid who craves attention. He wasn't trying to start an international incident. He just wanted people to go, wow, that's really neat. Where'd you get that? Which is insane, considering just how sensitive this information is. And I'm really guessing that when all is said and done at the Pentagon in the U.S. Department of Defense, heads are going to roll by the time this just is over. Say, there's going to be an overhaul. There needs to be one. 
inside the mind of a mass shooter. I did tie it in to a feeling that seems to be growing. It's in our headlines. It's becoming political. We have the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, calling out a wicked crime spree across Canada. He's blaming woke mayors and politicians. But the rest of us, though, have both our feet on the ground and we're looking around us. There has been random crime in Canada. And it's kind of shaking how we feel about ourselves because we've all been just so proud of ourselves, maybe too much so. Chuffed is the, probably the, uh, the right word because there's a little bit of negativity there. We look to America and now we're wondering about here, but still in America, it never ceases to amaze us. Even this week, someone live streaming a shooting in a bank. And it brings us back to the epic amount of mass shooting that are happening in America. And we want to know why do they do it? What is it about our times? Why is it getting worse? Is it guns? Is it their mind? Because somebody decides to do it, never mind the influence of guns, surely. But why do they kill? And what's different about them? And there's a lot different about them when it comes to other kinds of killers. We're going to have a conversation with an expert and look at the psychology behind this violence. Joining me is Ari Kruglansky, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland. Ari, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> I I want to lay out, first of all, I just uh, went there a little bit, is there is a difference, isn't there, between a mass shooter and a murderer? What are the differences? You know, they both, there's killing, but the mass shooter has so much other criteria, almost the headlines, and we know how it runs out, and we know the template for the coverage of it, and they tend to go online and they make a decision, and it's almost like they want to go out in glory. Is is there a technical difference in your world between the two? Well, I think there is a difference in terms of the a murderer can sometimes target a, a, a specific person, a given person, one person that hurt uh, uh, them or, uh, you know, did, did some wrong to them. Uh, whereas a mass shooter uh, usually kills a fairly random uh, set of people and uh, they aim to kill as many as possible. So whereas a, a murder usually is more targeted, more, more specific, has a specific graphic and a specific person, a mass shooter is using the opportunity to kill people as a way of getting notoriety and fame. Uh, this would be the, the, basic, the basic differences. All right, let's talk about the latest one. We had a, it was a live stream. We had a bank in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, considering all the uh, the checks that you, that you make when we look at the, the mind and the person who did this, how does this play out to you? What are you seeing? Well, I think, you know, the, the important thing is not the specifics of a, a given shooter's mindset because uh, they are very different. Each person's life circumstances, grudges, um, hurts, humiliations are different. But I think there are three basic ingredients that uh, account for this growing trend, this growing tragic trend that we see. Uh, in 1919, there were two shooters two mass shootings a year. Now we have close to 700 shooting a year and, and thousands Unreal. of people are losing their lives. What are the basic ingredients? The basic ingredients are three. We call it the three N model of, of, of mass shooting. One ingredient is the need. People feel, masses of mm -hmm. people feel 
disgruntled, humiliated for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, the, the globalization, pandemic, uh, refugee crisis, the economic uh, downturns, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the truth is that uh, masses of people feel very uncertain about their future, very uncertain about the, the meaning of their life. Uh, so that's the, the, the need aspect. The second is the narrative that through mass shooting, you gain fame. And with every mass shooting, that narrative, that message spreads wider and wider. And the third and is the, the network, the, the fact that there is an audience. There are other people watching. Uh, the media are propagating uh, the, the idea that the mass shooter uh, is somebody uh, who is now becoming a known person, uh, gains attention that he would have never or she would have never gained otherwise. So these three ingredients, when they come together, the need, the, the humiliation, the feeling of disgruntlement, the narrative that shooting is going to uh, make you famous and make you significant and, and feeling worthy, and the network that supports that, uh, when you have these three uh, ingredients, then you have a mass shooting. And the problem is that this narrative is, is spreading wider and wider, and we see this exponential growth in, in people, in disgruntled people, turning to that as a way of establishing their meaningfulness, their social work. Yeah, because let's face it, I mean, a lot of people feel disgruntled. You just went through some modern reasons, but there's a lot of reasons. And mass shootings were, I mean, they're increasing in America, but there was a ton before that as well. Yes, the, the problem, yes, of course, many disgruntled people do not turn to mass shooting. Many yeah. of them commit suicide. There's been, for example, a rising wave of suicide of, of working-class Americans in America. Their longevity has been cut down significantly. And that is also because of their feeling that they lost dignity because of economic reasons. They support their family. They lost their jobs and so forth. So sometimes people turn to, the, uh, to, to violence against themselves uh, in order to make this final act of, of, uh, of empowerment. Please do that. Uh, but I think that the mass shooting gives you much more attention than suicide. And I think that's why that message has been spreading and it's growing exponentially. And, you know, it's uh, emulated in Canada. Uh, it's being emulated in Europe. I think, you know, the media is sharing the, the, the news and uh, we, we need to do something about it. And, uh, very little has been done so far. Ari, before we go to the phones here with our caller who just witnessed some violence, you said something, and I just want to talk about it a little bit here. You talked about the media. And to me, this is such a big part of it. The word contagious. We saw it happen. I remember Columbine. And then, wow, it, it, it just seemed to be a virus that people got it in their minds. We're wondering that even here in Canada. is isn't mass shooting, but we're seeing crime, people suffering from those things that you've just laid out there. And now they make a decision because they see someone else made that decision who was feeling so desperate as well. Ari, is the word contagious meaningful here? It is very, very meaningful. Uh, people see uh, that there is a way of establishing uh, their notoriety, that attention is paid to them, that all of a sudden they are a kind of hero, a kind of superstar, uh, and they are willing to do that because their uh, anguish, their torment is so extreme that they are willing to sacrifice everything, sacrifice even their life, because 
many of them die in the hands of law enforcement, but their uh, hurt is so extreme that they're willing to do that if there is a payoff, and the payoff is the fact that they are celebrated, that they are given attention, that they are uh, emulated by others. All of a sudden, they are somebody. They, they, they matter. They, they have meaning. Uh, and the media, because they propagate the message by a hundredfold, uh, play a very important role in that. But, you know, it, it's, we must not blame the media. The mm-hmm. uh, issue is much deeper than that. Uh, and you yeah, know, there's something that society can do. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's talk about it here. I'm going to do a bit of a switch here, Ari, if you don't mind. I know you've been we've been looking at the mass shooting, and we've just seen it in the headlines in America. It's happening fast and furious, as you say, it is growing here in Canada and elsewhere in America. It's very similar in urban centers. A feeling of a lack of safety in places where we did feel safe here in Canada. We're looking at transit. City of Toronto, a 16 year old boy stabbed, making national headlines. Another one in B. And then there was a stabbing on a bus in Calgary this week, and that word contagious came up. We're going to go to the phones here. We're joined by a listener, Stephen, in Calgary. Stephen, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon. I'm a senior. I was returning some library books and paying my uh, NMAX electric bill at City Hall. I was on that bus where uh, uh, a group of uh, young people. Everyone is young compared to uh, 68 years old. Right? <laughs> they started playing their music loud. I, I just turned my hearing aids off. And there was a guy that uh, took offense to that, of course, and started swearing at them. And uh, pepper spray was pulled out. Except that, you know, when you confront someone, you don't know what kind of weapon they have. The other person pulled out a gun. And he shot uh, one of the people right in front of all the bus uh, riders there. Uh, then, then, which is worse, I hear that uh, a Ukrainian um, fellow that just landed, got a job in construction, was sitting in a bus shelter, minding his own business. Mm-hmm. He didn't say a single word. Someone going by goes into the bus shelter and stabs him. And there were no words uh, exchanged. Uh, he, he didn't even know this person. So no, it's random. Yeah. It was beyond random. I mean, what are the odds, calculate the odds of someone fleeing uh, a war to only get stabbed while waiting in a bus shelter, not even speaking, not yeah. even in Canada, in Canada. That's the deal. Yeah. We don't we don't um, think of ourselves this way. Ari Kuglansky is with us, who's a professor of psychiatry. Ari, you know, we've just been talking about mass shooters. You've been talking about that need. Is anything tied in into these random crimes and violence that we've just heard here? Because we're seeing more of them and we're also hearing about more in America. Well, you know, again, through shooting of people, you get attention. Uh, you don't have to shoot anybody in particular. There is, you know, a kind of biological primitive link between aggression and significance. Through aggression, you uh, feel empowered, uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, civilization and the culture are, are trying to overcome this uh, innate tendency, this uh, reptilian brain of ours that reacts to any a kind of humiliation with violence. Uh, 
Uh, but I think violence still, you know, once you go beyond the, the, the cultured, civilized surface, the, the reptilian brain is still there, and we are ready to uh, be violent and to aggress against anybody uh, who we feel uh, is uh, humiliating, is reducing our sense of significance. And it's, uh, the random aspect of it is that uh, just by aggressing, you feel empowered. This is our biology. And because so many people feel now in our society and across the world disempowered, humiliated, left behind, uh, and the narrative that through violence uh, you can attain uh, empowerment is spreading, uh, that accounts for, uh, for you know, what you see, this, this uh, All right. increasing All right. wave of emulation. Yeah. I want to ask you, because there's probably some people, uh, you know, throwing their socks at the radio here and uh, or their computer a little bit. You know, you know, you know, there's a they say they're tired of people being victims. Lots of people have had terrible lives and they don't make these decisions. And I know it's it's strange. Is it biological? And then others are saying it doesn't matter what it is. We have to make sure that the long arm of the law, we're there to protect people. You know, I've talked to serial killers before, Ari, and I'm always trying to find out why. And it's pretty hard because you go through their life. Maybe they had some some bad things happen to them. But sometimes those things, you know, I have friends who've had the same things happen and they didn't become serial killers. Are we are we now in a time? I mean, there is a lot of pressure on people, but people make those decisions. And people have gone to war. The people are fighting in Ukraine. Are, are they making these same decisions? Can we solve this by relenting a little bit, or do we have to make make take steps to make people not take that that big step, Ari? Well, again, you know, the three ends uh, theory uh, points to ways in which, in which we must act in order to reduce that plague, that pandemic that is, uh, of violence that is taking over. Mm-hmm. One is we need to, uh, to create a more just society. You know, it's easier said than done, but in our individualistic competitive society, many people are left behind. We do not take care of each other. Uh, the way we should. And, and people who are disgruntled, who are uh, feeling less behind, uh, need to do something. They want to do something. Yeah, but not, they don't the all, Ari, though. Not all people no, they do, do that. They do not, people, I know people who've had terrible things happen to them. Absolutely. And they're, they're kind Absolutely. and good. That's why the narrative that violence brings you fame, that violence brings you notoriety, that narrative has to be countered. It has to be countered. So in it's the, the celebrating it of it that you think exactly. is the problem. The celebrating. And the, yeah. third, the, third way, the third thing is we must stop celebrating. And there the role of the media is very important. To reduce the attention, to reduce the, 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 you know, the advertisement of names of people who did these mm-hmm. things. Deny them the fame that they are seeking. So, yeah. you know, take care of the need. Uh, be very sensitive to people's dignity at schools. When you see bullying in the military, uh, there has been an increased wave of radicalization in the military. Uh, change the culture so that, that the violence is really the legitimized kind of 
Yeah, it's so it doesn't be because we've got yeah. we've got somebody. Yeah, we get people who are celebrated. We know that for going out with guns. Ari Kuglansky, thank you, this thank is you. The for, narrative, the narrative that you're yeah. powerful. You know, a cowboy with a gun. Um, yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, that's kind of entrenched, certainly, in America. We know the Bank of Canada and the betting of folks in the economic world thought that they were not going to raise interest rates, and they did not. But there were some warnings. So how has it changed the field in mortgage costs and renting? We're going to take a really deep dive on this this hour. We're going to begin with James Laird, co-founder and co-CEO of RateHub. James, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, what a weekend. I mean, we're we're trying to digest the effect of the lack of a of a rate hike. And so many Canadians were very, very nervous. Should they be a little calmer now? Yeah, a, a little calmer, Arlene. It was um, you know, a year of the biggest rate hikes we've seen for 30 years. So uh, you know, people got used to their rates going up, especially on the variable side, but we've now had the second rate hold, uh, in a row. And so we are, you know, I think the market was searching for a new equilibrium, um, post pandemic, post rate hikes in this inflation fighting environment that we're in. And we are cautiously, we have cautiously found that new equilibrium that I think, Canadians can expect uh, several more rate holds from the Bank of Canada unless um, some piece of data comes in that surprises them. It is. You know, we're watching very carefully. We're watching to see what the Fed does. And other countries around the world are also not committing to the end of rate hikes. What are the variables? What are we looking for that could change this? I think the the, the main things that they're looking at uh, Number one is inflation. They are trying to get the, the central banks are trying to get their policy rate up high enough and leave them there such that inflation moves back uh, to target. Target in Canada is 2%. Um, while at the same time, they're, they're trying to do that without causing a recession. So it's, a, it's definitely a, a tightrope act uh, that they're attempting here slow things down enough to get inflation under control, but not so much that we enter a recession. Um, and we'll see if they can pull it off. How do they pull it off? That's the magic question, isn't it? It's been such an unusual time because we have high job numbers. It, it's not a, a normal kind of a worrisome moment when we talk about the big arm recession. There's no doubt that certain variables seem to be pulling in opposite directions. You know, uh, drug, job numbers remain quite strong. Um, yeah, I think one industry, which of course we specialize in here, housing and mortgages has um, slowed down very significantly since uh, last summer when the, when the big rate hikes started. So yeah, it depends on which, which aspect you zoom in on. Um, but certainly that that high jobs number would be would be the number one thing that is still pushing uh, inflation or causing inflation to be stubborn uh, is that extremely high employment rate. All right. You know, we call it mortgage pain. And I'm sure that's something you've been really looking at. Um, what kind of risk are we at 
right now of mortgage paying? Because we've been looking at who did what, when, and when do they have to renew as uh, some of the factors that could lead to them in a tricky situation here. Well, so I, I think mortgage pain is assured. It's in a way, <laughs> it's already happened. Um, uh, you know, it was always going to be painful moving off of the historic lows that we probably got a little too used to. Um, you know, we had variable rates at less than 1% and fixed rates at less than 2% through the pandemic. Um, and that was not normal. Um, but but moving off of the historic low, it, it's painful. Um, I think when I look at it, I expect um, households are strained uh, along with the rest of their expenses, grocery bills, gas bills. They're, they're certainly strained, but um, I don't think these rates are high enough that it should break most households, meaning they can't make their mortgage payment. I think, um, you know, what gives me a lot of peace in mind in making that statement is that uh, all borrowers were stress tested at around mm -hmm. 5% who got a mortgage. And, and that's really, you know, the, the highest rate that anyone has is in and around that 5% mark. Um, so uh, is there strain in household budgets right now? Absolutely. But unless there's been a job loss or some other, you know, major impactful event within the household finances, um, there still should be the ability to cover that mortgage payment, even if difficult decisions are being made, you know, mm -hmm. some extracurricular activities might need to be cut back on, you know, less eating out, things like that. So there's definitely uh, choices being made and, and tightening occurring. But again, unless there's been a job loss or something like that, um, people should still be able to make those mortgage payments at these higher rates. So, James, as you're saying, that is very true. You know, we were just talking about uh, the factor of those job numbers. They have kept all this possible. But what if that shifts? And are there any, I hate to keep going back on this because I, but I know people who are worried about this. They say, what if that scenario changes? Well, well look, if, you know, it, it all comes back to employment, it all comes back to, to jobs. Um, I, I think we should acknowledge that the Bank of Canada is trying to, like it sounds funny to say, but they actually are trying to put a few more people out of work. That's, yeah. it sounds weird to say, but that's actually It's what the medicine, isn't that's it? That's what they're it's trying the to medicine. do. medicine, yeah. yeah. Labor markets are too tight. And uh, a more frank way of saying that is we want a few more people to be unemployed, which sounds really weird to say that, uh, but we don't want too many. And uh, look, when when people are, when unemployment rises, uh, too much, uh, all bets are off. Like there's no, there's no cure. Um, if, if the household has lost one or both incomes, uh, well th then there is no, you know, uh, making choices, this or that, there's no cutting back on your, that, that is when household budgets break is when, uh, one or both incomes are lost. So, uh, that will always be key to an economy is having, um, you know, the vast majority of people who want to work, uh, be able to work.
Right. You know, when we break it down too, I know people were stress tested, but they also assumed, because I want to get in for a moment into the psychology of all this, and because it is important when it comes to the economy, you know, they were they were stress tested, but they assumed they were paying off a certain amount of the interest portion of that. What kind of a factor do we have in people's finances when that interest that they're paying off is smaller and smaller, you know, eventually they're going to have to, to refinance their mortgage and they may be a bit shocked. Yeah. I think we should start this, this discussion while acknowledging that um, the vast majority of Canadians are in five-year fixed rate mortgages, which, so what you said would not apply to them. Mm. Um, the group of Canadians you're talking about are in variable rate mortgage mortgages with uh, fixed payments, uh, which means that the payments uh, have not changed to uh, compensate for the higher interest rates. And so if the payment doesn't change, the only thing that can change is the amortization. It gets longer and longer as you're paying less and less of your uh, principal off. Um, and when I think of this group, I, I look to another group, which is there's um, a portion of Canadians have a variable rate mortgage with a variable payment. And so that means that their payments have moved in lockstep up with the rises in interest rates. So mm -hmm. their original amortization is still true. They're paying off all their interest and the same principal that they had planned on paying before. Um, and again, this, this group, um, like they're kind of the, the tip of the spear. If we want to understand what Canadians are going to need to go through in the years ahead, this group of Canadians just went through it this past year, right? They, they are already paying five and a half percent, just like we're, you know, we're kind of wondering when people come up for renewal, how are they going to deal with it? Well, this, this group is already dealing with it. And, um, again, I come back to, are they strained, annoyed, frustrated, this, you know, every other um, kind of negative word. Yes, they are. But are they making their payments? They are. Um, like our, our arrears rate is, is extremely low and, and continues to be. Um, now that's, that's a bit of a trailing indicator. So it, it takes time for, you know, the bills mm -hmm. to pile up, but still, um, we 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 have a very low arrears rate, and I think it's because we have very prudent lending practices in this country. Uh, most people who have, or really everyone who has a mortgage, they had to go through a, a pretty arduous underwriting process uh, in order to qualify to borrow uh, that money. As you mentioned, they're making the payment and they're making it happen. And I, again, I get back to the mindset here. I'm reminded of times where I paid a much higher interest rate than that. So I'm one of the seasoned people. But there is a demographic here, James, that really doesn't know anything else but very, very cheap money. How is that affecting the psychology of our economy and the market and buying a house and all of it? It's a bit of a shock. No doubt. I think there's a generation. I, I think I'm probably the, the eldest of that generation. I, I started my mortgage and real estate career about 15 years ago, um, right before the financial crisis. So right, mm -hmm. right as I was starting, rates were similar to where they are right now. Uh, fixed rates around four or five, variable rates similar. 
And then the financial crisis happened and rates dropped then. And at that time, that was the historic lows. I remember when the five-year fixed rate went below 4% for the first time in Canadian history. And then it went below 3% for the first time in Canadian history. And the pandemic brought the first time below 2% in Canadian history. So uh, yeah, it's been a decade and a half now of what, if you go back further than that, are extremely unusually low rates. Like that's, that's what's kind of funny about even this discussion yeah. is that like we have a five-year fixed rate at 4.29%. And, you know, if I, if I called my dad and asked him how good mm -hmm. a rate that is, he'd, he'd say burst that out is, laughing. Yeah. He'd be happy running in the street. <laughs> yeah. He'd say, yeah. He'd say we could have eaten out as a family <laughs> twice a week through the eighties and nineties if kidding. that's what I could have paid on my mortgage. So, but that, that, that doesn't change the fact, your, your point about, mm -hmm. Um, just because going back 50 years, um, these rates aren't too bad. It, it doesn't change the fact that for a, a big group of younger Canadians, these do feel like very high rates um, and, and rates that they're not used to. So we're going to have to get used to them and we're, we're, you know, there's no other option. No, and keeping with this and the mindset, and you can almost see, uh, um, to your point about uh, the historical impact of this, you know, Tiff Macklin really seemed to want to make a point that there were some people predicting, we know that there's optimists in this business saying, okay, this is it, they're going to start going down. We started hearing all those teases, but Tiff Macklin being pretty clear on Wednesday, they are a tease. And they are not a sure thing. So uh, clearly the Bank of Canada understands there is a mindset and they almost have been like prepping the battlefield, prepping the waters here for what could happen and not getting people too optimistic. How important is that? Yeah, I think Tiff and his team, they, they have two tools to uh, fight inflation with. The main one is what is the actual rate? What is their, what is their overnight rate? It's also the language, um, and I think I, I think both in his press conference, but also in the uh, in the announcement, they you know that sentence that actually disappeared a month ago came back, which said, "We will raise rates higher if we need to." And I think like when I read that, I, I was like, oh, yeah. "The Bank of Canada is sick of people asking them when they're going to drop rates." Um, he, he, like you know, he was again clear in his press conference that. He thinks a rate cut this year is not a likely scenario, uh, even though the bond market is pricing that in. Um, so I think in their language, they are trying to beat back some of that optimism that you're talking about. All right. And just uh, focusing on the housing market and how it affects things just for a moment here. You know, we've had some after the speech and announcement by the Bank of Canada's Tiff Macklin say this uh, crazy housing market that continues to be so strong is, quote, unsustainably high. How does that factor into this? Because, you know, so many times, even in this conversation, we talk about that things are still there. People are still making their payments. That's very positive. But the optimism is still there, too. And the markets, the jobs are strong and the housing market is strong. What do they mean about the warning that it's unsustainably high? We've heard that before, but I think this uh, demographic is starting to see sometimes things actually happen. Yeah, I mean, um, we might need another hour to talk about the, <laughs> yeah. the, the housing market when people say, 
the unsustainability, I think they're, they're referring to uh, values rather than transactions. Like whenever we discuss real estate, you know, on a year over year basis or uh, what have you, we're usually talking about one of two numbers. Uh, the first being what is the average home value in that region? And um, home values are down between 10 and 20%, depending on which market in Canada you're, you are in versus the peak about this time last year. Um, so down, but not like they're still, um, like my view is they've given back about half of the gains that they made during the pandemic. Um, that crazy pandemic run up that we saw in home values across mm. the country, about half has been given back. Um, and, and so that, like, I think most people look at that and say, the comments that you opened with say like that is still too high. Um, and the, the sec, the second aspect is transactions and transactions are, are way down. Um, we're at, you know, 20 year lows in most markets from a transaction perspective. Um, and that's because we have call it disciplined or stubborn, um, buyers and sellers where, you know, sellers are saying, I, I don't need to sell this property. The rental market's very strong. So unless I can get, you know, what my neighbor got, I'm just not mm -hmm. going to sell. I'm just going to rent it for a year. And then on the other side, buyers are saying, you know, things have changed. Rates are higher. Um, whereas the past 10 years in many markets, a buyer would just do whatever it took to get that house because they thought that house would be worth more next quarter. Yeah, you got it. They're being more disciplined. They're saying, look, I'm going to, my bid is this, I'm not moving from it. And if that doesn't get me this house, so be it. And so that with both sides of the table, unwilling to, you know, negotiate or budge much, we're still at a very low point from a number of transaction perspective uh, so we'll see how that unfolds through the spring here. I think that the more stable rates are, um, people would prefer them to be lower, but at least they're not going up anymore. That provides, you know, at least the variable is solid for you to make your housing decision at the moment versus uh, four months ago, you weren't sure what rate you would have to finance that new purchase. The aftermath of the Bank of Canada's decision to hold rates, they did it for the second time in a row. So we just, just discussed a kind of a little bit of a stabilizing with mortgages. What about renters? Uh, not such great news. New study that is telling us that if you're a renter and you've just thrown your hands up in the air, you got to do a few more things. Joining me is Jillian Kennedy with Mercer Canada. Hi there. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You know, we know there's a ton of fallout from all the difficulties from mortgages, cost of living, cost of housing, and now some information about just how this is going to impact those renters who have given up. And I started with that because we know there are many people, and I know them, who just say, look, uh, I don't think this is going to be possible. I'm a renter for life. How tough is it going to be when they retire? So based on a Mercer study, we you know, put some assumptions together. It's important for us to have, you know, two personas, as you've mentioned, a renter and a homeowner, and take a look at what is the impact when they retire. And they, what we found is, is, a, is a couple of things. First of all, the millennial renter would actually not be able to retire with the same pre-retirement income as the homeowner until age 68, whereas the homeowner can actually plan to retire at age 65. Um, so that's, that's a pretty big difference if they're 
are people out there who are thinking, you know, to work to age 68, that, that's a lot longer than I think most people would think they would work to. But also that that renter would need to save 50% more um, in order to be able to have the same quality um, of living within retirement. We measured that based on 69% of pre-retirement income. And it, it really is kind of taking a look at the combination of government benefits as well as just personal um, income to pay yourself in retirement. Okay, where do you where do you put all the money in the slots? If somebody owns a house, is this about them selling it or living in it? And because they own it, they don't have as many expenses. So we wanted to keep the the study simple. We also wanted to use Canadian averages. We want to create a baseline so we can start to discuss. You know, what does this mean, and how you know this could be impacted with different types of outliers. Um, so very, very basically, we assume that both were exactly starting at the same place, starting to save at age 25, both had the same level of income. Um, and then we we layered in some Canadian averages. So we assumed that the homeowner would be spending $500,000 for their first home. That's the Canadian Real Estate Association average for the first home. Um, and that the renter would be paying $2,000 a month. Um, we basically um, then just simply simply ran that through and uh, arrived at that income replacement, including government benefits. So there are, are some simple assumptions that assume that, you know, when that person gets into retirement, that that home is being used as equity. Um, so yes, that their home would be paid for. I mean, you could absolutely say that that might not be the case, but here's what's really important about our study. It, it What we found is that the homeowner can use that home as equity and has more flexibility in retirement. So if you think about the traditional kind of three-legged stool in retirement, you're gonna get sources of retirement income from government benefits, like our Canada Pension Plan, Quebec Pension Plan, and other supplements, Mm -hmm. personal savings and equity. And your home is such a big part of that equity. And so even if you haven't fully paid off your home, you still have the ability to use it as equity. So whether it's a reverse mortgage, renting out your basement, taking a look at, you know, renting it out for part-time, like it still is a tool that allows the flexibility to be able to afford what you want to and to draw upon it when you need to. Yeah, we know that renters are more vulnerable, but, you know, I know people who've retired recently and they're in a shaky situation. They planned all this for a long time. They sold their house and now all of a sudden, even the rents, are, are much more uh, vulnerable for them. They're going up. They can not rely on even the rent staying the same. So the situation is getting more and more shaky for renters as we deal with all these new realities. And we would completely agree with that. In fact, that's why we've been watching the millennial generation so closely. They're not going to get the same level of investment returns as other generations have been able to enjoy with compounding mm-hmm. interest, that's makes such a big impact on, you know, I save so much money, but, you know, 20 years from now, it's worth so much more, but also the cost of living and how this cost of living will continue to increase. And I think that you've really kind of touched on something that creates um, instability for retirees, right? And so if I'm, if I'm trying to keep up with the cost of living, including my rent, if rent keeps going up, right? What will happen? Well, what will happen is, is that the things that I want to do in retirement will need to move into things I have to do in retirement, which is being able to pay for shelter, food and keeping the lights on. Right. And that can lead to, um, you know, feelings of isolation, feelings of 
you know, um, you know, mental health issues. It really just kind of deteriorates the quality of that person's life. Julianne, I'm glad that you brought that up because the people that I know, they're really blindsided by this. This is what people did in their communities, especially in small town communities. They had no idea that this situation would change. We saw what happened in the pandemic and everybody started to migrate but there's going to be a massive fallout of those who are following a template of those who've gone before them. And now they're actually frightened for the first time in their life. They've owned a house, but now they're they're frightened that their rent is going to go up. And it is. And in some places, there's no protection for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a, a very big challenge. I think that um, affordability and retirement is not discussed enough. Um, and I think that I think the other thing that you've touched on that is super important is that we need to start to disrupt and challenge what we think is traditional milestones, either on the way to retirement or into retirement. Right. Take that millennial who's who's told, hey, you go to a really good school, you get a great education, mm-hmm. you get a good job. And you're, that's all you need to do. And then you'll have your home, you'll have your family, you'll enjoy work, you'll go to retirement. And then when you're in retirement, you're just going to enjoy this lovely vacation and you get to do all the things that you couldn't do while you were working. And that really is something that I think for years and years and years we've been selling um, to, to the average Canadian. And I think we really have to like challenge that at this time. Um, both while you're saving, we know that that's not going to work anymore, but also in retirement, you know, we have seen a lot more people have to go back to work in retirement mm-hmm. when they didn't expect to. And we've also seen situations where, where people have been, you know, uh, you know, in situations where they are having to get care um, for themselves in retirement and not realizing the cost for that care or what that would look like for them as far as how it reduces the amount of income that they have to spend. So what's the solution? I mean, people have to be aware of this, you know, renters right now. And I know people who've given up and they're in their 30s and they say, "Okay, I'm just going to try to save more money. I'm going to invest in things. But as you say, I mean, owning a home for the most part is a guaranteed hunk of money at the end of the game. Maybe not so for investors. And they are aware of just how much they have to put aside. That's yeah. So we we definitely saw. So first of all, I want to say this is a point in time study and it could get worse. It could get better. But what's really important is we wanted to get this out there so we can start talking about it because there is time to do things differently. Um, So one of the things that we we also have information on is that the um, the millennial generation, you know, generally um, has access to workplace programs. Now, either those workplace programs could be a situation where I'm putting money into my company's matching that, so I'm doubling my savings, or I'm getting access to really low-cost investment funds because of the pooling power of everyone in my company saving together. Um, And we tend to find that this generation is the generation that has a lot of competing priorities. And it's very difficult to say, I'm going to give up some of that money and I'm going to put it over here for what might be something that's 20 years away and instead they want to use it right now. And so I think it's really, really important to say, you know, of those priorities, make sure that some of that is going towards your long-term financial security, even if it feels like um, this is something that you can't prioritize. And then I think the call to the marketplace would be, how do we give this generation more flexibility so that they can get something from an employer, but not have to give up access to the money when they need it? Yeah, 
you mentioned employers and we know that, mm-hmm. you know, many years ago, people relied on employee pensions and then they've gone the way of the dodo bird. Uh, the new kind of impetus that employers can give, is that something that's catching on? Yes. So what we're starting to see catch on quite a lot, and I think this is coming on the heels of, you know, what I would refer to as the wellness era that's continuing, right? We saw, especially during the pandemic, a renewed focus on supporting physical um, and mental health initiatives in a workplace. And now what we're starting to see is a focus on financial well-being, right? And so I think that we'll we'll see, you know, programs starting to come into a workplace that's going to be more realistic, things like supporting debt repayment, uh, more financial literacy, access to information that employees can trust, maybe even things like financial counseling and advice. And I think that these are so key to empowering and giving back the control to this generation. Yeah. And do they get it now? Do you think that this message is going through or is there going to have to be some big campaign to sit down and explain? And let's face it, it's bad news. So I, I think that there is a combination of um, I, I, I get it, but <laughs> I still don't know if it's realistic yeah. for me to do it. Right. And so that's why I think there needs to be a call into the marketplace to say, you know, this generation needs more flexibility than any other generation has needed. And they're going to need the support. Right. So let's take the workplace retirement program as an mm-hmm. example. This, this, this generation is not going to take hard-earned money off of their pay and have it be locked in or restricted while they're employed and not mm-hmm. be able to touch it, right? So how do we f- provide that flexibility to them? Um, I think that also matters, you know, flexibility of, okay, I'm, if I'm not working, I have to take a parental leave, a caregiving leave. If I have to reprioritize things in my workplace and have reduced working hours. They want access. They want access yeah. to the money. Yeah, yeah. Finally, let me ask you, what about those who have this rude awakening here? Those who have said following a plan that their parents did and their aunts and their uncles in big cities and even small town all across our country now are looking around and saying things are changed. Who's to help them? So, so I think, again, the financial wellness piece is important. I, I, I think we do absolutely find that this, um, the, there is this kind of feeling of, of you know, uh, fear, paralyzation. I can't do it. I can't go forward. It's very similar, again, to the health story. We all know what we need to do to be healthy. But on the financial side, I think it's, it's more difficult for people to be disciplined about it. But I, I also have to say, in, in, you know, looking at the research for this generation, mm-hmm. there is some resiliency here. Right. And I think that this this generation more than others will adapt and they'll come up with different ways of home ownership or different ways of thinking about working um, that I think every generation can learn from. Like very, very quickly, something like, you know, home ownership in sharing a home. Right. Um, or this whole kind of, you know, kind of um, generation of, of working and traveling and, and, and living, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in yeah. doing that so you can work longer. So there I think there is some resiliency here that will will absolutely spill into future generations. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.